case no, some of you don't know who I am, uh, my name's David Griffiths. I'm the Director of Studies in Archaeology, and uh, I'm also the Director of Research. That doesn't mean that I direct people's research, far from it, but I, I have a role overseeing and coordinating the department's research culture, if you like, and making sure that we, we are fully switched on in terms of research, both within the department and also in relation to all the other schools, departments and faculties that we're related to in Oxford and beyond. And obviously we're a multidisciplinary department, so that's quite an interesting job uh, because there's an awful lot happening that, that's way off from my own purview. Um, and uh, we have made these, these seminars consciously interdisciplinary. That means that we're actively seeking... Is this on, actually, Liz? We're actively seeking to uh, promote interdisciplinarity. This is the new thing, really, in university research circles. It's been very much recognised in the university's latest five-year plan. Um, and uh, it's all about breaking out from the shackles of our own individual subject areas to hear the approaches, ideas, concepts, philosophies and methods that, that other people in different subjects have and applying them to our own. I mean, as an archaeologist, archaeology is a, a fundamentally interdisciplinary creation anyway. Uh, it sort of came about as a conjunction of classics, geology, ancient history, uh, and um, so it's, a, it's a, a mixed bag, and I suspect most other subjects are, and interdisciplinarity brings that forward and makes it, you know, a, a celebrated focus for our research. So we always try to have um, subjects from uh, speakers from different subjects uh, at these seminars, and uh, you will notice that there's only two speakers tonight. We normally have three. Um, this was down to the fact that uh, our original choice had to drop out of uh, the third speaker, and Liz has has really tried extremely hard to drum up a third speaker, but. Uh, Everybody's obviously too busy at this stage in the term, but we would normally go back to three speakers when we resume our seminars again after this one. Um, I would obviously have offered to give a paper. Um, I deal in the past, so talking about the future is, would be quite interesting, wouldn't it? But uh, we already have an archaeologist speaking tonight, so that would have uh, rather mitigated it against everything I've just said. Um, so I, I decided instead to perform a, a role that really tries to make a bit more, really, of the discussion and, and get some points going afterwards, and we'll see how far we get with that. Um, but certainly everybody here, please do feel included and welcome in the whole process of the seminar, and I want, want everyone to participate. Having said that, uh, Liz has given me quite a complex breakdown of what the filming uh, element consists of and how you can choose to operate within that context. Um, the seminar is being recorded. You'll see the camera behind. Um, <clears throat> there are people who are perfectly happy to be recorded, either visually or, or in terms of their voice, and there are people who prefer not to be. Um, so if you would rather not be recorded or filmed, um, you, you can go and sit on that side of the room, ideally nearer the back, uh, which w does not come into the 
uh, aperture of the filming. So um, if anyone would like to move, uh, please do. That's not, not a problem as far as I'm concerned, um, if you want to move. Um, the music played as well will be <laughs> yes. Chairs will be taken away. The other thing is that if you, if you uh, participate in the seminar and that your voice or face are recorded, as mine are at the moment, um, uh, in order for us to be able to use this as a, as, as a, as a resource in future, uh, it's not going out live or anything like that. It will be edited before it's used in any way. In fact, it's probably just going to be archived. We're not, we're not, <laughs> you know, for, for, for future use. But we're, 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 I want to get people to appreciate that they're not on live television or anything. Um, uh, but nonetheless, if you appear on it in any shape or form, then you have to sign one of those forms at the back, which is one of these unfortunate modern kind of bits of bureaucracy that if, you, if you're seen in any way then you have to sign it. And if you, don't, if, you are, if you do take part in the seminar and you haven't signed one of these forms then Liz tells me we can't use it which would be a shame. So please do remember to do that at the end. Okay? Is that clear? Have I said everything I need to about that Liz? Yeah. Okay. Well, two speakers is perfectly good actually, I and mean, we often have seminars with two speakers. And uh, the two speakers tonight are Jill Hind and David Howard. I think Jill's going first, aren't you, Jill? Jill is an archaeologist, um, <coughs> currently finishing a DPhil in the archaeology of water resources in post medieval Oxfordshire. And uh, Jill has been. Uh, working for some time now for Oxford Archaeology, which is the leading commercial uh, practitioners of archaeology in the so-called real world, and they are in Oxford. There's a huge building down in Osney Mead full of archaeologists all working for developers and working for national bodies and doing projects on road construction sites, housing estates, all that kind of thing. And Jill is part of their consultancy uh, department. So I guess Jill relates to developers in a kind of advisory capacity and producing reports and all that kind of thing, which I, I did myself at one stage for a different employer. And Jill has been uh, a, a very, very regular and frequent attender of courses here in Ruley House, not just archaeology courses either, plenty of scope, including summer schools. And Jill is going to speak on the future of the past, the disappearing dead. But before we get to Jill, I'll just introduce the other speaker for... Uh, uh, so that we've got a scope there as well. David Howard, University Lecturer in Sustainable Urban Development within this department and a fellow of Kellogg College. Uh, I have to read this bit because it sounds very impressive, but I might get it wrong. Uh, outside the university is a CNRS associate, the Centre Afrique dans le monde, University of Bordeaux. David has researched a number of areas relating to contemporary Caribbean and Latin America with specific focus on urban neighbourhoods, social sustainability, migration and development. Recent research projects have centred on urban violence, governance, land rights and housing in Jamaica and the Dominican Republic. So two suitably different but complementary uh, uh, themes today. And, and 
It'll be our job collectively after we've heard from both of them to try and glean what we can in terms of an, an understanding of the concept of future, which is uh, something that's ever-present, obviously, in everybody's lives, but not one which we often think about as a concept in its own right. We just see it as something that's jumping ahead of us day by day, and, and most of our... Our studies, really, certainly in archaeology, embrace the past and the, and the great record of thought and action that humans have produced. But it's always produced facing towards an unknown future. This is a very interesting aspect of the human condition. So I think it's a very interesting uh, and productive topic to beginning with. So, uh, Jill, would you like to come up and start your your talk? water supply as a student. I'm not going to be talking about that tonight. I'm going to be looking at something which has come out of my role at Oxford Archaeology. churches on changes that they want to make to their church or their churchyard. And so I spend um, quite a lot of time looking at the dead. These are some of our former parishioners, a church in Oxford, Shire. Um, and as an archaeologist, the human body and graves and the monuments associated with them are a very important part of our resources. And we can tell a huge range of things. Now, I'm not a, an osteoarchaeologist. I am not a human bone specialist. But I do use the results of their work, and I have in the past done some work with, with human bones. What I've been doing recently is a research project for English heritage, which is intended to develop a set of criteria for assessing significance of burial grounds. And these burial grounds start with uh, a Neolithic site, and they come up to burial grounds which were founded in the late 20th century. So it is a multi-period project. And it's raising some very interesting issues to do with burial, which are going to continue to have an impact on burial in the future and on the work of archaeologists in the future, because as an archaeologist we're always looking backwards. And in the future, what we're going to be looking back to will include what is happening now. And, um, archaeology stops sort of yesterday but there's normally for most occasions there's a larger gap between the two now uh, this slide just gives you a list of all the things that well most of the things that you can tell from looking at human remains from looking at the, the bones from looking at the kind of burial that they've been put into 
whether there's a coffin, what they've been buried with, what they're wearing, or what they were wearing when they were buried, how people have marked the burial um, place. It's, it's a very fertile resource, and we spend a very large portion of our time relying on this evidence. Although, um, you do have to be careful that you take grave goods in particular with a certain amount of scepticism because there is a tendency for all people to be buried with a special selection of goods that you wouldn't necessarily put them in with the everyday goods that they work with, but they're, they're best clothes or special recognition. Okay, now there are a number of occasions where we have burials which are exceptional and uh, I'm sure you'll <coughs> recognise um, the one that was in the publicity, Richard III. The general public really picked up on Richard III as a very interesting example. And it is. We, we've managed to obtain evidence which suggests that he did have a physical deformity, that Shakespeare was not entirely wrong, probably exaggerated quite a lot deal, but he wasn't entirely wrong. We've got evidence that Richard III died in battle and that he was not well treated by the victors of that battle, which is no surprise. And we've also managed to um, prove that he is Richard III by using the DNA from his descendants. So there's quite a lot of information. Similarly, um, going around the, the Iceman, you may not recognise the, the name Ertzi, but he's the, the Copper Age body that was found in the Alps. And again, there's a lot of information that's come out. And because he was not formally buried, because he died and froze and was found later, we are sure, in his case, that things that are found with the body are everyday items. And that's a very rare opportunity to have some idea of what the clothing from that period looked like. It's not something that we often get the chance to do. Uh, this one, Lindau Man, is the bog man from Cheshire, which is uh, an example of kind of preservation that you don't get in very many conditions, and an example of a ritual death, actually killed probably in three different ways, which one of them finished him off. <laughs> it's not very easy to tell. We can also tell uh, what he was given to eat as a special treat in his last meal as a condemned man. Um, the Emsbury Archer this comes from near Stonehenge, and the, the most interesting thing about the Amesbury Archer, well, two interesting things. One is that he was, again, like Richard III, had a physical deformity. Um, but the most interesting thing is that he was from somewhere in the Alpine region. Now, <coughs> this is all very interesting information, but say, these are exceptional burials. In order to be sure that we are drawing relevant conclusions which we can apply on a broader scale, <coughs> we need to look at large numbers of human remains. 
And this is something that archaeologists do a lot. Um, probably the most well-known um, examples of this from burial grounds and churches uh, at the top here, that's a picture of Warren Percy Church. And that was really a groundbreaking um, project in excavation of human remains, an investigation of large assemblages of human remains. Uh, the other very famous one is the Spitalfields Crypts from uh, London. This is not Spitalfields, this is uh, another one. This is St George's Bloomsbury, which is one that Arche Oxford Archaeology has worked on, and we, we do a number of these. Uh, the uh, cemetery is also one of ours. That's <coughs> Hammersmith, that one. And at the bottom, uh, that's Haslar Naval Hospital. And that was an interesting project because it was a specialised group. It was Napoleonic War um, sailors going up to the Crimean War. And you can tell quite a lot of special information. Th th this is uh, a healed fracture from, actually from Greenwich. We did the Greenwich Hospital Cemetery as well. And you can see some individual information there about what injuries sailors had. But these large-scale sandwiches are absolutely vital so that we can get a pattern. If you're talking about people were, people were shorter in the past, how do you know they were shorter in the past? Well, you've got to look at people or you've got to look at records. This is where burials are coming in, one way. We also have... Um, mass graves that are unexpected. Um, some of you may have seen the Weymouth Vikings. It's a collection of 51 was, um, Viking warriors who were not very successful raiders and had their heads cut off and they were buried in the, the, the pit. Um, that was this is part of the Olympic legacy. It was found when we were working on the, the road for the, the sailing events for the Olympics. Uh, this is an unusual one. This is a, a Roman mass grave, very rare. And this was actually found in a cemetery in Gloucester. And the most likely explanation for a mass grave like that is that it's a plague pit. But um, we also have, at the bottom here, a couple of pictures from one of the most successful mass grave projects. And probably the, the most... Um, uplifting mass grave project that I'm aware of, which is Fromel, which was a First World War mass burial. The mainly Australians <coughs> who were killed at the Battle of Fromel and were buried quite neatly, but in a single pit by the Germans after the battle. And we excavated them very carefully, collected up all the things that they were buried with, and of the 250, 212 of them have now been traced and identified by comparing their DNA with DNA of relatives who thought they'd lost somebody at the battle. 210 Australians and two British. So that's uh, a very successful project. But again, it's the everyday assemblages that you need to develop the skills to enable you to do that kind of thing. So. Uh, yes, that's a very successful project. Look at flashing to Prince Charles at the end. What's happening in the future? Well, uh, this slide shows you how the percentage of 
people in the UK who are cremated has increased since 1960. And as you can see, we are now more than three quarters, or about three quarters of the population is now opting for cremation rather than burial. And cremation started in the late 19th century. The first crematorium in England was opened in Woking. And it was opened before, well, they built it before it was sure that cremation was actually even legal. And there was a court inquiry to see whether cremation would be considered legal. And it's increased, and by 1968, it was 50-50, and as I say, it's now more than three quarters of the population being cremated. There are some groups which require their, bury, uh, their body to be buried in its entirety. Um, Muslims will always go for burial, and Orthodox Jews go for burial. Um, there, there are other groups um, who are not as absolute, and there are other groups who absolutely prefer if at all possible, to go for cremation. Um, the Sikhs and uh, the Hindus are a very small proportion of cremations out of, out of their dead. So why has this changed? Well, cost. A funeral, as some of you may, may know, is an expensive business. It's, it's expensive in terms of time, in terms of the people involved, and it's expensive in terms of maintenance, because you've all seen churchyards which look well tended, and you've all seen the opposite, where it's overgrown. Sometimes that's because they've turned it into a, a nature reserve, enhancing the, the fact that nobody wants to go and cut the grass, but it is a, a costly business. Um, I think that's probably the main reason. The second reason is the liberalisation of religious belief, because it used to be um, part of the religious teaching that the body needed to be buried in order to be resurrected, or to move on after death, and that has changed. And um, I think it was in the 1960s that the Catholic Church finally agreed that cremation was an acceptable fate for their dead. And another um, issue is the movement of families, because in, in the past, people tended to have an association with a particular place. Lots of people never even left their parish in their whole lifetime. And so having the graves of the family in the churchyard visit them was a reasonable thing to do. But if you are living at the opposite end of the country, how often are you going to go back to make sure that the grave is being looked after, it's not being vandalised, the headstone isn't falling over? So uh, that's, that's another issue. Uh, there are other environmental issues. Because it uses up land. Some people are worried about contamination. We've got 
lots of dead bodies, and this was a real problem in the 19th century in towns. They had to stop people from burying in urban churchyards because the contamination of the water and of the air became unacceptable. And there are also um, other reasons that people don't like the idea of their relatives lying rotting. Probably isn't something that we necessarily want to dwell on. And also, um, it's quite popular, or thought to be a good idea to use cremation where the death is associated with something shameful, criminal acts or suicide, that kind of thing. So there are lots of reasons behind it. Um, in Oxford, uh, I was trying to test out this thing about religion. And I was able to obtain some uh, data for burials in Oxford from uh, Trevor Dawson, who runs Oxford's cemeteries. And how easy it is to see, but um, at the bottom, I've got calculations for the percentage of Jews who were included in these burials. Uh, to compare with the percentage of the population of Oxford, taking the census figures, who uh, claim to be Jewish. And it is, the, the percentage of burials is higher than the percentage in the population. But it's not as high as I might have expected it to be, considering that the burials only represent, say, a, th a quarter of the people who died. Um, possible reasons um, are that the Jews in Oxford are not Orthodox Jews, and therefore they are going for cremation. Uh, but if you look at the figures for the Muslim population, it is, again, much higher. Uh, there's a higher percentage in the burials than there is in the population, but again, nowhere near um, the proportion that you might expect when you consider it's only a quarter of the population. And that's not really such an easy one to, to look at. Um, I don't know why it isn't bigger. Possibly because we haven't had traditionally had a Muslim burial ground in an Oxford cemetery. I suspect that that area is fairly new. And they may have developed a tradition of, move, of taking the dead to um, other areas Reading, uh, Slough, places where there has been a tradition of Muslim burials, um, and that's something that would be interesting to explore. Now, <coughs> it's not just the change from burial to cremation. There's also a change in the way that the body is treated. Uh, at the top, um, embalming. Embalming used to be something that was quite a special technique. The Egyptians were very keen on embalmment, lots of mummies. Uh, but I think, driven by the United States, it's now becoming very common for most bodies to have some degree of embalming, even if they are then going to be um, buried or cremated. And I think that's partly due to the fact that in lots of cultures, 
seems to be very popular in America, is the idea of an open coffin and viewings, which is not something that I, un um, I understand, but that, that has had an impact. Um, that is an American um, funeral on the left. I, the embalming isn't too much of a problem for an archaeologist. In the sense, you can still look for injuries, you can still look, you can still measure the bones. Um, the only, the particular area which is affected is the DNA, because um, the embalming fluid, not, not part of the DNA. So that that limits what you can do with the remains to some extent. Um, the big change, though, if you look at the bottom, on the left-hand side is a Roman cremation, and you can see quite large lumps of bone in that cremation bowl. And those bones came from a young adult female. You can actually tell the sex and relative age of the individual from a cremation from that period, because the remaining bone is large enough and it's been uh, burnt at a relatively low temperature. Whereas uh, if you were given, as an archeologist, the urn on the right, there's not a lot you could learn from that. So that's, uh, you know, cremations in the past were useful. Cremations are less useful than they used to be. There are other things that can happen. Green burials. Very environmentally favourable. Um, it's up to about 3% of burials in, in England are now um, classed as green burials. Everything's biodegradable. And marking is very limited. It's controlled on how much um, permanent mark you can make of the burial place. And you don't go back and tend to the grave. So the remains rot, there's no marker, there's nothing left. There's going to be some new techniques, and um, I have to thank my husband for bringing one of these things to my attention, these bizarre interests. Forensic archaeology, but uh, resonation. Um, we don't use that in this country. I think it's a Swedish technique um, when the body is churned around with a strong alkaline solution at a fairly high temperature, and it uh, produces, takes the, the flesh and the chemicals and turns it into a liquid which can be neutralized and then. Um, disposed of in the drains, and some bone which is very soft and crushable at the end. So that's not used. I didn't think this one was until I started preparing for this talk. This is a, another new technique, which is, um, where the body's frozen with liquid nitrogen and then sort of shaken into pieces. And uh, what the Frozen powder, dried out frozen powder, um, is not long in the ground before it disappears altogether. And I say I think that's um, fairly new, but that came from the Cheshire East Local Authority website, the information on that. So I, if, they weren't, if it wasn't being used, I can't imagine the council would bother to put it on their information sheet. It's not the only factors. But you also have to worry about attitudes, changing attitudes. And you've all heard 
uh, unsure about the Druids wanting to take all the prehistoric bodies and give them a, a nice pagan burial. But it's more than that. There's a lot of um, debate as to whether we should be looking at human remains at all. There's the issues of repatriation, if they've got uh, human remains from other cultures. And it's making it more difficult to use human remains for archaeology. Another current issue, which has got implications for the future, is the fact that we're running out of space for burials. And um, this, this is not a new issue. The, the big scandal when Westminster City Council sold off some of their burial grounds for a very small fee, and they were then uh, told to buy them back. There was a uh, court case. But, of course, by the time they came to buy them back, some of the areas had already been cleared and um, converted into housing estates and things. Now, we're now talking about reusing burial grounds. Um, the mausoleum at the top, I think, is partly to, it was built partly to rehouse remains that were taken from another part of the cemetery, which was never fully developed, it was separate from the main part and was sold off. But they're talking about um, digging out old bodies, putting them in lower down and reburying on top. And that's going to get very complicated. Where you can put, put them? It's another issue, and this is an issue that um, probably a lot of people have, is finding space for archives. Some of our are just waiting to be. The argument is that you can put record, but how safe is the record in the future? So, what are we going to end up in the, with in the future? Jewish burial ground, mass graves, criminals, small number of burials. What are archaeologists going to use to find out how the heights and things have changed over time? Okay. That's it. later on, but does anyone have any questions for Jill? I've actually got to repeat the questions for the, um, for the recording, so that question was where do you think it's easiest to do this kind of research based on different legislation around the world? I don't know. As I said, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this thing, but I, I actually suspect that Britain is probably one of the better places to be because we do have a tradition. We do have um, the Ministry of Justice has systems, English Heritage has systems, because we, we have thought about the issue. And making it possible, but how long there's going to be a resource, and how long attitudes will allow it? 
Sorry, I'll come to you in a second. I've got a comment on that. I tend to disagree slightly because I think Britain's very uptight about this, really, compared to a lot of continental European countries and Middle Eastern countries where there's obviously respect for the human soul and the lives of the departed, but the physical remains are... Yeah, if they're being studied scientifically and kept in an archive, then that's not so much of a problem in a lot of countries. Whereas we've, we've been backwards and forwards with how long we've got before they have to be reburied, um, which is a bit arbitrary. But there are countries that are significantly more stringent than ours in terms of not even being able to touch or excavate human remains. And the one that most people would quote in that regard is Israel, where there's very, very strict and uh, a policy of not really letting people dig up human remains, uh, which is quite controversial, really, isn't it? Jews, yes. Um, but I was over in Denmark this summer, and they seem to be quite happy with doing it. Um, they've got a very high, high profile for archaeology in their intellectual culture as well, which could help. Extremely good national museum, so... Um, they tend to do things rather well over there, I think, really. Sorry, David. Well, yeah. It doesn't apply to archaeology after, before a certain date. It is exempt from it. So, I mean, that seems to be getting bones and adding chemicals and whisking it up and getting a chemical analysis. Well, I mean... Not, not a chemical analysis. Uh, not, is it? So no, I just, yeah, I'm no, no, that's, that. that's, that's What's a disposal technique. Oh, right. So not, I think an, not, a, um, not an archaeological technique. That's an alternative cremation and burial. Oh, right, sorry. So it's not part of the... It's actually... Okay, so you mm. destroy it. Sorry, I thought that was analysis. Form of analysis, so you the content of Probably far more money goes into things like cry. You didn't mention cryogenesis, no, or, or, or which, or which um, you know, very rich Californians pay vast amounts of money for their bodies to be frozen, and they they're hoping to be woken back up. I think when the big moment comes, um, and this is a new one because we were just talking about. I mean, we're doing an excavation of some um, burials at this very moment, actually, at Bartlemas Chapel in East Oxford, which is where my East Oxford archaeology project has done a major excavation in 2011. And um, <coughs> this is very topical, actually. Uh, we, we, when we, we, Jill knows this because she's, she's one of the clients that Jill works for is the Oxford Diocese. And they, own a, they don't own the chapel as such, although they kind of do, but they have a rood of land, which is a historic allocation of land around the chapel. And then the rest of the site... Uh, is owned by Oriel College. I don't know if you know where this is, but it's a very small and very beautiful little medieval chapel that's up a lane off Cowley Road opposite the Regal Cinema, and it's got several very beautiful old houses surrounding it, and it's the remains of what uh, originally was a medieval leper hospital founded in 1125, um, and uh, it, it was it became an almshouse in the 14th century was transferred to Oriel, uh, who partially rebuilt the chapel and the original leper colony sort of s s 
changed out of existence at that point. Uh, but we, would, we were excavating there to uh, help with the drainage project. And um, <coughs> the, the faculty, which is the legal permission from the diocese to excavate, stipulated that we could remove disarticulated human remains, but not articulated human remains. This has got nothing to do with fluency of speech. Um, it's to do with whether the, the bodies are intact and all together as a, as a full unit or whether it was just bits and pieces. And we found several charnel pits, which are reburials of bits of bodies, and they're very, very interesting indeed. And we excavated those, and we also exposed what is now 15 uh, inhumations in the ground. And uh, the osteologists found extremely good evidence of leprosy on those skeletons, which was really satisfying given the historical situation. Um, they've all been studied. And two years later, uh, the charnel, the bones that were dug out of the pits, are going back in the ground tomorrow morning. There's a divine service led by the parish priest at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning with a choir and the, a basket, as Jill, Jill showed, a um, uh, sustainable uh, burial container. It's actually, I, I won't, I hope this doesn't go out live, but it is actually a laundry basket that we've got for this, because it was the best type of thing that fitted the, the job, uh, rather than having one made specially. And we've put these broken up remains of lots of different human beings in this, and the parish priest is very, very, uh, very keenly anticipating the moment when they go back in the ground and there'll be a service tomorrow. Um, and that's part of the faculty, and the faculty that stipulated that is, is based on the burial law as it currently stands. You saw a couple of the documents there that Jill shows you, guidance documents, but um, it's very topical. And these, are, these aren't even people, really. They're just bits of people. And in fact, there's a bit of dog in with them as well, um, which came up from the child pits. It's, it's part of the same deposit, so they're going back in the ground and... Words are being said. The really daft thing is that I think there's this sort of compulsion to rebury human uh, bones from excavations, uh, but anything that predates the 6th century AD, where there's just a shade of a possibility from the late Roman period, uh, isn't going to be Christian. So therefore, why bury, say, a Bronze Age, someone like Urtzi there from the early Bronze Age, or the Copper Age, as it's called? Why bury that in a Christian context? It's a bit of a, uh, an incongruous uh, concept for archaeologists. But, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the future, which is the theme of our seminar, it's all about uh, space and, and, and issues like that, but also the, uh, I think, our kind of in insecurities about our grasp on life of dr are driving this kind of ongoing uh, set of stipulations about how we deal with the dead. Because you'd expect that it would become easier to deal with the dead mm. as people become less committed to organised religion, which seems to be the case. In, in mm. it's, not, it's not happening, is it? Well, that. certainly the number of cremations and so forth have gone up a lot in very recent years. Yes. I think we better move on unless there's any more questions. Yes? Could I ask a question about 
can take the value and reliability of the findings. Um, if, I, if I could just very briefly say why I asked you this. Based on our building um, as a result of some changes uh, in the immediate locality, um, a fifth century burial was discovered. This was um, professionally excavated. The great guy proved extremely interesting. Um, in the aftermath, it struck me very powerfully that it had been looked at in an extremely limited sort of way. It had been very scrupulously examined by the um, osteologists and the grave digs had been very, very carefully analyzed and so on. And all that was very thoroughly described. The context in which it was found and the way in which that particular burial might have related to other archaeology in the area, that close area, was extraordinarily untreated. Uh, and I'm just describing an unsatisfactory excavation as it seems to me from a semi-professional standpoint. Is this by any chance Dorchester-on-Thames? Okay. Because <laughs> uh, I could tell you why it was limited in that case, but well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a 5th century burial, so there aren't that many 5th century burials that pop up. But <laughs> could be Hannay, could it? Um, the point that I'm making is that it, it, it appears that there are varying standards, but I may be totally wrong about this, in the way in which that sort of exercise is carried, carried on, um, which must produce varying degrees of usefulness in the findings. Uh, it depends, I mean, what you're trying to, to get out of it. I mean, I agree, I agree there, is, there is variation, um, as in any variations in standards. Um, there's also variations in how how much funding is available, what, what is, is achievable. But, I mean, what the, one of my main points was that you need a large, you need a large assemblage in order to be sure that the conclusions you're coming to are valid. If you're just looking at one or two variants, it could be from one family who happened to be particularly short or particularly tall. But the, the more work you do, but if you're talking about in, an individual single burial, then you do have to treat it with a certain amount of scepticism, or you have to do a lot of work to make sure that you do investigate the context. Tara, were you about to say anything? Okay, to press on. I hope so. Okay, thank you, Jill. It's a good bit of discussion there. Now we move on to David's paper. Rather than talk about it in detail, um, it's there for those who want to, I'll, I'll discuss it a wee bit. Right, um, thanks very much indeed, Jill. I, I've uh, learned a lot, and I've also learned that if I'm ever in a bar in Chester called Promession, and offer the stiff cocktails, so <laughs> I'm certainly... Uh, Decline. Um, Chester's in che West Cheshire. It's actually Mathis. Really? There we are. It's getting more now. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, thank you very much indeed, uh, uh, David, for, for chairing and Liz for uh, organising all the uh, talks and the dinner, etc. Um, the purpose, I guess, of these uh, themed seminars are to take a word, a theme, and see how it fits into your research, often indirectly. So I'm not a futurologist. 
I don't really look at urban futures per se, but if you typed in cities and futures, you'd have a plethora of, of committees and uh, research groups, one called the future of cities here in Oxford. Um, but it, clearly, what I'm interested in is what happened, how cities progress. progress. Um, and in particular, my research is in, in Jamaica recently, and this talk's based on uh, some field work I carried out this time last year, over three months in Kingston, Jamaica, in Trenchtown, but particularly in Rosetown, which is a community, uh, one of five communities within the wider, should we say, urban uh, neighbourhood of Trenchtown. So, um, in a nutshell, if you will, Rosetown as a community was built in the 1930s by Mr. Rose. It sort of exists as an urban village, as a lower middle income community. Uh, then from 1960s onwards, and specifically from 1970s, increasing urban violence, initially around p politics and gang violence, uh, created uh, one of the most dangerous, arguably dangerous neighbourhoods in Kingston. Um, and the talk is really about how that community is in the process of transformation uh, from being one of the most violent neighbourhoods uh, I mean, some of the levels of uh, homicide are higher than the green zone in Baghdad at times when you, look at, when you scale down and look at streets and parts of neighbourhoods. Um, but I'm interested now how some of the ideas of the 50s, 60s, uh, the notion of the urban village, and some of the stories, oral histories of, of residents at the time, how the new or the rebuilding of Rosetown is relying to some extent on the past. And that's particularly framed in the notion of new urbanism which we'll look at, um, we'll look at uh, briefly. But I should say, first of all, very big thanks to uh, uh, Angela, Ingrid, uh, Omar and, and Dean, who helped me immensely during my time in, the, uh, in Kingston, and, and specifically with the Rosetown uh, Federation for the Built Environment. So in, uh, overall, my interest and my research themes focus on urbanization, forms of security, uh, individual security, personal security, um, economic and social security for individuals, but also for households within, by and large, low-income neighbourhoods in what might be termed the global, urban, um, global uh, south. I'm particularly interested in ideas of shelter and tenure, the security of tenure, where people live, why and how. Um, and also, and there are a few links, I think, with Jill's talk, uh, unfortunately, around notions of death. But I'm interested in the formalization of assets, and particularly uh, Ananda de Soto's notion of formalizing household ownership, because in that way you release the so-called dead capital, the equity of a house. If you're squatting, if you don't have legal papers, you really can't raise money uh, on the mortgage. So there's a, there's a quite controversial theory that looks at the notion of legalizing informal squatter, ownership, uh, squatter uh, tenure, um, non-rental tenure, and by the process of legalization, it allows the individuals, the household owners, to then have a bank account and enter the formal economy. So that process of formalization, and, and De Soto has talked about the so-called release of dead capital, particularly within the built environment. And overall, I'm, I'm interested in ideas of social sustainability, uh, and particularly the relationship between the built environment and the social environment, the links between urban design and social design, uh, and if there are any. So, um, from Trenchtown, the general perspectives uh, overall, I'm looking at ideas of sustainable urbanism, sustainable neighbourhoods in the low-income economy. I'm interested in the notion of violence as a, as a roadblock to development, and we'll look at that uh, in, in, a, in a couple of slides later on, particularly how that is implicit in, in Jamaica, in Kingston, in downtown King, Kingston, since around 2000, 2007, 2008. That's when it became sort of an issue um, that was recognized by the World Bank and the UN. 
I'm interested in the notions of post-violence. Uh, there has been, really, since 2010, uh, a transition in downtown levels of violence, primarily because of a military and police so-called incursion to remove one of the leading dons uh, or gangsters. Uh, and some of you may have heard about that in May 2010, when it made the head news of the of the um, well, of global news, really headlines of global news. Um, so Rosetown, Kingston is the focus, uh, part of French Town, and it's in the backdrop of a formalisation of the tenure programme and the provision of so-called public services, particularly water and sanitation, and, and increasingly electricity, where there's been a transition, a rolling back of the state, a hollowing out of state provision, as, and more and more governments are requiring uh, individuals' households to buy their uh, basic services from private companies. So that's the wider picture. But what really I'm going to look at in the next 20 minutes is how notions of the past, uh, particularly Kingston in the 1950s, 60s, the architectural form of, of, uh, of, of, of downtown buildings, and in some ways the social networks and social relationships were part and parcel of that era, are in some ways being cast as models for the future. Okay, so in some ways it's back to the future. It's looking at the past and seeing how much can that be regenerated or rejuvenated to create a more sustainable uh, urban present. So what is new urbanism? Um, new urbanism in this particular format, I take much of the guidelines from the Congress of New Urbanism, which was founded in, in 1993. And it's a movement primarily in North America that is spreading out that aims to look at traditional forms of architecture and try and, and re-embed those notions of walkability, livability, um, connectivity within new forms of development. And so there's a, it's a, it's a politicised movement, it's a controversial movement, uh, but it has many of the aspects of what we might see as sustainable urbanism embedded uh, in its uh, charter of new urbanism. And there's a couple of copies passing around there. But essentially, uh, one of the, the key things that the Charter says that it's applying valuable lessons from the past to the modern world. It outlines principles for building better communities from the scale of the region down to the block, i.e. To, to the local neighbourhood. And it's not without controversy. Um, many people argue that certain areas that have been transformed are areas of gentrification, that many intentions to create mixed uh, income communities if you create uh, uh, attractive buildings that suddenly um, buildings that were meant to be affordable are soon priced out of the market given a free market economy. And many of you may have heard of, uh, of the two slides. I'll, I'm probably blocking the slide actually. Um, but the top uh, example there of new urbanism is Seaside in California and then the celebration uh, here uh, also in, uh, in, in uh, no, sorry, in Florida. Um, they're both in Florida, sorry about that. Um, but as you can see the image there, I mean, this is from the, the brochure from, from, from uh, Celebration, but there's some classic images of what you might see to be the urban bucolic past of the 1950s USA. So we have the white picket, fe picket fences, fences, and we have verandas, the notion that houses have verandas, people sit on the front of a veranda, they'll be outside, they'll engage with people walking past. There are all these sort of small but important details. There's a garden at the front, why is there a garden at the front? Because there's a notion that if, you're, if you have a garden, you, you look after it, you'll be sweeping up the leaves, and if you're outside the front of the house, you'll be talking to people walking past. 
because it's a walkable community, cars are catered for, but it's an, a, a pleasant environment in which people walk around, engage. And, and the basic notion is if you know your neighbours, if you create a social context where network, networks are open and fluid and trusted, then you'll create a sustainable social environment. So that, in, in some ways, is, is, is some of the basic ideas of new urbanism. And they, they, in many ways, they match on to some of the notions of what is a sustainable city. So again, if we look at some of the broad literature of sustainability within the urban uh, arenas, um, it's increasingly recognizing the impact of a city region on the wider region, not on the wider, uh, wider rural uh, hinterland. It's acknowledging individual and household and municipal accountability and responsibility for increasing consumption. It's fitting in the local agenda 21, thinking local, acting globally. Yes, that's right. Um, and particular highlighted in yellow here, which probably applies to the Rosetown um, transition that's maybe being mooted and considered, it's encouraging mixed use and diversity. Compact development, the notion that, that actually high density is good, it's more sustainable, it creates social interaction, uh, and it creates positive social reaction if the environment and the politics and the economics, uh, economics of that uh, neighbourhood are conducive to positive interaction. Um, sustainable cities also look at the urban hydrological cycle. You know, sustainable cities aren't just thinking about what's above ground, it's also what's below ground. And actually that particular issue fits into one of the uh, projects uh, in Rosetown we'll look at. That's in the, uh, the fitting of a new uh, water and sanitation pipe. Renewable energies. Um, but I think probably what is most interesting in, in, from, from my perspective in Rosetown is the notion of sense of place, a sense of community, uh, and principally the walkability. The idea that social connections will increase uh, sense of belonging, sense of community, and by and large will create a safer, more secure uh, environment. And just of those two images are a bit blurred. I mean, that's clear. That in some ways we'd say, well, that's a typical uh, unsustainable environment. But there are elements there. But let's say from, from the 19th century, you've got a share. In some ways, you've got mixed travel there. You've got horse and carts and, and pedestrians. Um, but you've also noticed people walking to work. And some of the notions of mixed land use is that we do start putting uh, factories next to shops, next to neighbourhoods, because if you're living near where you work, you're reducing all the commuting. And for those of you who live beyond the Ring Road in Oxford, I'm sure that I, I did reducing commuting would be uh, a good, a good, uh, um, a good um, practice. Um, and that is this is interesting here how the Prince's Foundation for Building a Community have been very much involved in Rosetown, um, and it resulted from the Prince's Wells visit, visit to the uh, neighbourhood in the early uh, 2000s, and in, in engagement of the Prince's Foundation. Uh, with residents uh, and the Rosetown Benevolent Society and the formation uh, down the line of the Rosetown Foundation of the Built Environment. There was a master plan uh, created in 2009 um, that starts providing some images of what you might imagine of Jamaica in the 1950s, 1960s. And so what we'll look at in the talk are some of the current images of Rosetown, the current facts and, and occurrences, and then relate how do these how can they and how should they and, and how could they be related to this notion of the redeveloped Rosetown? So um, this is really the, tagging to the, the, the future focus. Uh, but clearly, sustainability, in many ways, definitions of sustainable urbanism have evolved from the Brundtland Commission's 
publication called Our Common Future, uh, bringing together of uh, NGOs, governments, uh, activists, politicians in the late 1980s, uh, created four, if you will, pillars of sustainability. And many of you will know the classic definition of what's seen to be sustainable development. That is to meet the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. Uh, but it's not always about the future. Uh, I mean, the Brundtland Commission is much about the here and now, and a notion of intergenerational equity, uh, gen um, equity within age groups here and now is, is, is of, of key importance. Spatial equity, um, that notions of sustainability have to be transfronted, have to cross boundaries, but by and large we operate in a world where bureaucracies, uh, political action is framed within political networks, whether it's municipality, whether it's the department of a university, whether it's a ward, electoral ward in the town, or whether it's a region, or whether it's a state within a federation. Um, and then the fourth area is looking at the connectivity between social, economic, and biophysical forms of sustainability. Okay. And just uh, again, hark back to the past and looking to look towards the present <laughs> and the future. Sustainability isn't a new issue. And these, uh, some of these images are from the John Johnson collection here in Oxford, uh, a great collection to look at, available via your Bodleian um, solo access. But as you'll see here, uh, this, whoops, that's the uh, wrong way. Um, here we have uh, uh, adverts from 1930s, but there's a notion of harking back to a past that was sustainable, where we all had a cow, we all had a farm, we all had access to locally grown food, etc., and life was pretty good. That, again, is a, the reference back to a bucolic past. And although I'm not suggesting that type of bucolic past it was present in Kingston in the 1950s, 1960s, there's that notion of reflection on the past to shape some ideas of the future. Um, but on a, on a more practical time, Sherlock Holmes was recycling kitchen waste again uh, many years ago, many decades ago. So this idea of sustainability and what constitutes sustainable living isn't clearly a new uh, um, buzzword per se. Um, for those of you who have probably attended any urban course, lecture, or just read a newspaper, these figures are uh, repeated or repeated everywhere. Uh, all they're really there to focus on is that by, by and large, the majority of the world now are living in urban areas. They are poor and they are young. And that's why right, Rosetown in Kingston reflects the urban majority. The majority world is going to be living in poverty in an urban area and by and large in the global south. And then we talk about the, uh, the increase, the global increase of the, uh, of the world's population. Well, 95% of that dem demographic growth, growth occurs in the global south. So there is a real focus on what's happening within cities in the global south, because that's where the growth is occurring. And Hodgson and Marvin have argued that cities are the key site to lead sustainable initiatives. We're not arguing that we shouldn't focus on rural areas, but arguably cities are the key points uh, for the practice and initi initiation of in innovative ideas. And these relate to ideas of ad adaptation and resilience. So, moving on to Kingston. So that's the general background, and that's arguably why this case study of Rosetown in Kingston fits into the wider issues that, that are really important in looking towards, if you will, urban futures. Um, my re research is focused on uh, Kingston, Jamaica, uh, since late since, no, the early, the mid-1990s, but I've been looking at, uh, with colleagues, uh, with Colin Clark uh, initially, and, uh, and more recently with Alex Nabachas, the transition of colonial Kingston, uh, 
through independence to the current context of the urban and social environment of Kingston uh, today. So that transition from colonial to post-colonial city. Um, and when we talk about Kingston, we are talking generally about the Kingston metropolitan area here, sorry, Kingston metropolitan region. Um, but in particular today, I'm looking at this area down here. It's downtown Kingston. Rose Town is just about there. Um, some people have called this area the ghetto, um, but what I'll show from, from a couple of maps is a very clear geographical and social concentration. And there's a separation in Kingston between the uptown and downtown. And again, a couple of maps will show you that. And in many ways, that concentrates and intensifies some of the issues faced in Rose Town and Trench Town uh, in, in, in downtown Kingston. But Sorry, my, what do you mean by uptown and downtown? I'll show you on a map coming up. Thank you. Um, they're both quite common terms, colloquial terms within Kingston, but I'll show you in the next couple of maps um, what, what that constitutes. So uh, my work has really looked particularly since 1944, uh, full adult suffrage through to today, or at least until yeah, to 2013. Um, and I've looked at the transformation of the urban infrastructure, but also the social and, uh, and political and economic changes within Kingston, Jamaica, as a reflection of that transition from uh, colonial through to pre-independence times, then 50 years of independence, which was celebrated or commemorated, but let's say celebrated uh, last year in, in Kingston. Um, so there's a range of, of resources, visual uh, resources, archives, census material, Psychophotographs uh, or lithographs by Hupoli uh, and Sons uh, in the start of the century give a good idea of what Kingston was like at that turn uh, of the, of this, of the uh, last century. And you can see the, uh, the beginnings of what might be classic urban forms in terms of the modern era. So you have trams, electric, uh, electric tram cars. But what is interesting here, and this all kind of comes back to what we look at Kingston, at Rosetown particularly, is this is classic mixed, uh, mixed land use or mixed transport. You know, there, there are roads uh, used by tramways, horse and carts, uh, pedestrians, in a few years cars. And if you look at some of the images of Edinburgh, London, New York, Amsterdam, wherever, from the 19th century, there is that mixed land use. And arguably, that's increasing what's being tried to brought into contemporary times. Why should pedestrians uh, and, and cyclists and, and cars have their separate routeways? And, and some would say the parts of Oxford work where you have that mixed shared land use, and others say won't do. But there's a notion that actually sharing space rather than dividing up space is a far more practical and sustainable way to, to move around. And I think it's interesting, you can look at some of these images, and that's a very bad slide to show because there's one tram obviously carving its own space. But you can see how Kingston was evolving as a very formalized, uh, clearly from colonial days and the, and the grid system, but at the turn of the or start of the 20th century, you've got the emergence of what we might say of a modern city. And what I'm interested in is when we look at Rosetown in 1950s, 60s, you would see a modern urban village or a contemporary urban village. Now, when you go back to Kingston or Rosetown, shall we say, last year or 10 years ago, you're looking at a totally transform transformed urban landscape. And there wasn't a so-called uh, formal war. You're looking at the attrition of 50 years of civil violence, uh, political gangway violence. So I'm interested how, in, this, in the moment now of rebuilding parts of uh, Kingston, downtown Kingston, as a, as a result of the removal of certain leading dons, community leaders, what type of image is, is being rebuilt? And the new urbanist perspective would say, OK, we need to take what's 
good of the past and, and rebuild it, rejuvenate it within the present. So, uptown, downtown Kingston. Um, this is work I, I did as a postgrad, uh, no, a postdoc with Colin Clark. Some of the maps were, were really show this clear divide in Kingston between what might be called uptown here. So this is a, a very, well, it's a, a socioeconomic status score, a sense of class score. And you see that upper middle class tend to be located uptown Kingston. In downtown Kingston, by and large, it's the uh, people who have, don't have formal education, may not have formal employment, uh, have the lower income, and, and live in um, lowest standard forms of housing. So Kingston is quite specific, and you get this urban divide here between uptown and downtown. And people will say, you know, of that divide, that it's not only uh, socio-economic socio divide, but for census material, it's also very much a psychological divide. So, you know, I, I have colleagues even uh, who live up in uptown Kingston who will not travel, haven't been downtown for 30 years. So that would be a, let's say, a 20-minute drive, uh, two or three miles. And the main post office remains in downtown Kingston. Uh, some of the main government buildings remain in downtown Kingston. But many people will not tra tra trans uh, traverse that divide. And so you start seeing Kingston, there are cartographies of exclusion, not only between uptown and downtown, but as you'll come to see in Rosetown here, there are neighborhoods, uh, blocks, where different turf mean that people can't go from one neighborhood or one street to the next. And that's really been a legacy of downtown living for the last 50 years. That if you, if you're, if you grew up or you're living in Greenwich Town, you may not be able to go across the Tivoli Gardens next door because of the different dons, a different turf, a different politics controlling what might be two or three blocks. So you could argue that Kingston in many ways is a very much divided city at a variety of scales. And I should say overall the population in Jamaica is about 2.3 million and around 1 million people living in Kingston. So there's a reason to focus on Kingston because it's very much a primary city. I mean what happens in Jamaican economy overall, probably not including the tourism, but Kingston's an important uh, uh, mobilizing uh, economy for the Jamaican economy as a whole. Um, this is again uh, based on census data uh, worked on with Alex. Um, Danny Dorling is a new professor, oh, not a new professor, but recently arrived professor here in Oxford, argues uh, he works a lot on cartograms and says that you know, cartograms, maps are inherently uh, propaganda. And in many ways this is not a real representation of Kingston, but it shows you that if you look at the uh, orange and the yellow uh, housing classification, which are lowest standards of housing, these are very much concentrated in terms of the, the volume of low, of low standard housing is very much concentrated in downtown Kingston. And if you could arguably say, and it, it's often said, that this represents a ghetto area and that's the, the lowest standard of housing. And we'll look at some of that housing in the slides. So, uh, going uh, back to one of the themes, uh, there's a notion that urban violence is the major problem within the Caribbean, within parts of the Caribbean. The Caribbean is one of the most urbanized areas in the world. It also is one of the most dangerous areas in the world. If you look at recent figures, uh, homicides or murders per 100,000 on a regional level. So this uh, re report came out by the World Bank and the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, related violence very much to narco-trafficking and the issues within the Caribbean. Um, and again, you know, stacks of propaganda. You can tell stories in many ways. But undoubtedly, 
that the Caribbean is not just Bob Marley, Ganja, Sands, hotels, etc. It's very much a highly urbanized area with high levels of urban crime and violent crime in certain pockets. And this, in many ways, this report reflected what residents, particularly governments, NGOs, have been saying about the Caribbean for many years. And I think at a time, uh, it probably made the news because it was on the front page of The Economist. You know, the notion of the Caribbean was that of urban violence, not uh, palm trees and, and uh, cocktails. Um, again, so these reports are coming out quite regularly, and this most recent report by the UNDP related crime in Jamaica to violence, but also to its impact on the economy. So the argument in Jamaica, in the Caribbean, in many places, is that development is hindered by violence. If you have violent streets, you can't have a functioning economy. So it's not the case of having access to drinking water, or number of doctors per head, or access to schooling. The primary cause that many are concerned about uh, the hindering development in the Caribbean is urban violence. And this report just shows some of the economic impacts uh, of, of, of not only the violence itself, of trying to prevent violence or combat violence, uh, but also fear investment. And there's a notion there that $4.3 million of investment was lost by um, diversion of tourism. So, we're zooming down into Rosetown, and these next slides are just to show how everyday violence becomes a normative part of, of, of Kingston life. So as much as I wouldn't if I was living uptown, or one might not decide to go downtown because it's violent down there, there are regular statistics produced on a monthly basis that just repeat uh, the evidence um, and the fear of, of a violent uh, urban city. Okay, so you then read, this is the, the Gleaner is the, uh, one of the main Jamaican newspapers, you get regular statistical reports um, about levels of violence, etc. And I'm just uh, linking into Jill's talk. Um, again, this is really to show you how in many ways levels of violence become a normative experience. And this is a case, a story from 2009, whereby because of the high levels of uh, deaths by uh, violence uh, within Kingston, funeral directors or funeral companies would go station themselves outside A&E in the two main Kingston hospitals to get business. Okay. So you have that competitive notion. Why might there be a transition? Why, why might we be looking to the past to think about the future? Well, in 2010, Christopher Dudders Cope, who was known as the president, he was a very, very, very effective uh, don of Tivoli Gardens, who essentially set up a global uh, um, network called the Shower Posse, uh, essentially was a US, uh, USA's most wanted uh, criminal. Um, after a long process, the Jamaican government and military uh, entered, shall we say, it, or, or um, yes, entered parts of downtown Kingston, and uh, Dudders Cope was eventually caught or, or gave himself up, depends on um, which story you believe. So the shower posse is a notorious gang, but essentially was reflecting the ability of Dudas Coke to control a lot of downtown Kingston. We mentioned about the, the, the divided territories of, in Kingston, Jamaica. Um, Carl Stone in the 70s pointed out that essentially downtown Kingston is made of a series of garrisons, that within these uh, communities, um, initially they were controlled by political leaders, that you'd have one vote uh, going one way for the political leading, in terms of patronage and clientelism. 
uh, as the politi politicians lost their economic power as well as political power, community leaders of Doms became the main source of um, leadership. Okay. So Mark Figueroa has looked at the uh, interesting politics of Jamaica, where in some ways it's a classic Westerns democracy. The government's parties, the main parties of PNP and the JLP, have tended to go in and out of power as a result of what seemed to be free and fair elections. But Mark Figueroa has shown that when you look at individual ward, electoral wards, there are in some wards in downtown Kingston where 98 or 100% of residents vote for one person or one party. So he argues within the larger framework of Westminster democracy, it looks great, but when you go to the small-scale turf level, um, that is clearly a, a, a series of garrison politics, if you will. So I'm just going to show you a series of images, uh, really, uh, taken during my field trip, apart from this great image by Levine, uh, who appeared in The Guardian um, in 2008, that I went back to try and find this sign, and I can't find it. So um, maybe violence in some ways did stop, but there's a far more complicated story to tell, which we won't have time to talk about that now. So Rosetown is a, uh, essentially a neighbor, urban neighborhood of just over 3,000 residents, just under a thousand households. Um, many of the, the so-called uh, dwellings are, uh, will contain multiple households. So the classic form in, in downtown Kingston is a tenement yard where you have a yard, but there might be four or five different dwellings within that yard. Okay. Um, there's a very good baseline survey undertaken by the Rosetown Foundation uh, by Angela Omar, uh, Dean, uh, Ingrid and colleagues. And it gives, you an, it gives you an example of some of the social fabric, really, within Rosetown. So a third of residents are under 15 years old. Over half are female-headed households, which is kind of uh, is indicative of, of urban living uh, in Jamaica. Have I got want to wrap up? Yes. Yeah, soon. Okay, I'll wrap up fairly soon. 40% um, of households don't have employment. Uh, this is without any money coming in. So it's not underemployment. There's no money coming to that household. Um, but Crucially, 60% of people are squatters, if you will, in rent-free tenements. Um, uh, only 20% are owners, and 95% uh, rely on informal access to water and electricity. So the issue here is that we have households without any income coming in, that they are gaining electricity and water for many years by uh, informal methods, either tapping wires or tapping pipes, and the government is in, in the process of privatizing this access to water. So you, you really can see a problem coming up in terms of an informal economy that's been formalized in terms of access to basic services. So over the course of uh, three months, I did 79 interviews in Rosetown, really to uh, get to understand what's happening in Kingston after the Duddesk Coke uh, incursion in 2010. So interviews were carried out in 2012. Um, there's Napa Town. Um, there's Tex, Texan, Rashid, and Lorenzo, and that's the foundation's offices uh, just, um, just in, a, in, a, in the center of Rosetown. Um, Rosetown, why is it, why was it an interesting place? And why does it, is an interesting study if you're looking to the past to try and look, create or build the future? Well, in Rosetown is, uh, is one of only two places in Jamaica that is unique in the electoral ballot in that it is divided, it's one, a political constituency that's divided by two parties. And you'll see how that political division between the JMP and the PLP uh, is reflected in the urban landscape. Uh, and that's created what's called a no man's land, and I'll show you the images of that soon. Uh, but in some ways, Rosetown is a microcosm of the political and economic and arguably social divides 
that are reflected in Jamaica as a whole. Uh, um, the involvement of the, the Princess Foundation, uh, USAID, and, and DFID really over the last uh, five years has been intensified in the last two years when there's a notion of space for transition. That once the Dudas and arguably some of the other uh, dons, community dons, have been removed or at least displaced, there was this uh, social space to regenerate not only the physical environment but also arguably social networks. Uh, Rosetown is essentially, this is arguably Kingston. Rosetown would be this area up here. Um, and what we're going to show you is no man's land is a seven street. So if you think of the Shankill Falls divide in Northern Ireland, Belfast, 7th Street in many ways was the street in Jamaica where you had a northern turf run by the PNP and the Stinger and Sunlight Gangs and the downtown part, or sorry, the bottom end of Rosetown was run by the JLP and the Discipline Gang uh, headed by Roxy, who was a second in command to Duddus, the, the, the president, shall we say. So that's so interviews I carried out uh, for three months in top and bottom um, Rosetown last year. And this is no man's land, so that's 7th Street. Okay? So we have a divided community. In the 1950s, 60s, we were talking about Rosetown, lower middle income, urban village, um, and I'll show you just some quick examples um, that essentially have been torn apart over 40 years. So how do you reconstruct that environment, or that, that physical environment, but also the social environment? Um, and again, that's just an image, a good old Google image of 7th Street. And you can see there, there's very much the houses were uh, raised through, through years of uh, violence, etc. Um, and then you have top end and bottom end, once part of a very cohesive urban village, uh, and now, well, yeah, now two separate communities. It's only in the last 18 months that uh, there's been some transition, some movement between these two neighbourhoods. And the former Rose Town focused around Gordon's store, was a bar, uh, sold food. Um, it now remains in the middle of no man's land, and during the last 10 years was used as a morgue. There was a de facto agreement that if one gang killed another member, the dead bodies were, were placed in there, and the opposite gang would come and collect the bodies. So you had a, a narrative there of the community store, if you will, becoming the community morgue over the 40 years transition. And that's the type of shift that you're now looking to, to, to transform. And so it's notions of transforming the zinc fences of the uh, last 40 years, uh, clearly marked turf areas of no jail, JLP, um, um, other areas, uh, other identities around ganglands. This is around two Mavado and Gully, two Jamaican, uh, I guess rappers who then replicated uh, some social divisions about who was their follower or not. You see a transformation of, of what uh, some of the urban villas of the 1950s, and uh, this used to be their main community hotel, a very respected hotel uh, that uh, essentially fell by the way. But within the neighborhood, you still see some urban forms of the, of the old urban environment, and that's merely some of the type of architectural um, remnants that in some ways are being looked at and aim to be replicated. Uh, again, you can see there's the uh, old buildings, the classic 1930s, 40s uh, brick and wood buildings. Some of the streets remain tarmacked, uh, but the houses are, are boarded up. 
The Majestic Cinema, just to the south of the neighborhood, is still functioning, uh, um, but it's not clearly this community hub as it was uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And the children's playground has just been recently put in on the site of the former market, but again, it's not, uh, it's in transition. But in mid, behind the zinc fences, you have urban gardening, urban villages, you have uh, two uh, beehives, bee, sorry, um, apiaries. Um, and so within, behind these influences, you're seeing a very interesting, what might be seen as a, as a microcosm of urban village. A lot of uh, gardening going on. Uh, um, uh, Miss Barrett, uh, uh, many of the community leaders uh, transforming. Uh, there's Wilfred Anglin, again, uh, setting up new businesses. He now can go along the street uh, and, and he, um, with his trolley. And you see the, in, the incipient regrowth of, uh, of industry, carpentry, um, urban farming, jamrock, potters. Again, clay was dug out of the neighborhood since the 1920s, 30s. The pottery is, uh, has evolved really in the last two years and become a quite important artisanal uh, activity. Um, and key things I'm, I'm exploring or have explored is the resonance narratives, particularly the role of oral history and how the evocation of that generation gap is evolving. So you see a classic uh, focus on the past by, by a certain age group. You remember villas, verandas, shops, the bus route connecting Rosetown to the centre of Kingston, a market, a hotel, a community notion. The bad men were so-called rude, rude boys. They were, in Spanish, they tigres. They were sort of mischief makers. They would do some low levels of violence, but they weren't the, the, doing the level of, of violence that uh, is represented today. And then you see in the 1980s a clear transition in, in the urban uh, narratives, looking at turf, garrison politics, an intensification of gang activities that arguably has ceased or at least slowed down since 2010. So uh, you're looking at the fear of, a fear among, and fear for the youth of the day. And those who, who, who the youth we're talking about are not the 15, 16 year olds, they're the 11, 12, 13 year old boys in particular, but girls uh, who are in this zone where there's no longer a strong community leader, but there's lots of maybe issues of low-level violence that's actually there as that background, but without the, the community leader, Roxy, running it. So in the last two seconds, um, there is a notion of rejuvenating uh, Rosetown to take some of the, the good of the past and put it into the present and future. And David Pottigian's work as a, a brilliant Jamaican artist, he died in 2007, he created a notion of rejuvenated realism. And his oeuvre of work is focused really on downtown Kingston. And this is in Trenchtown, and it reflects the, the, um, some of the realities of, of Kingston really over the last 40 years to the canvas. You also have remnants of Jamaica's glorious presence and past, the Channel One recording studio of Maxfield Avenue in the hub of, of, of some of the problems of the last 40 years of civil and gang violence. Um, there's the images for the future and the present. Whether they come through, that's going to be an interest, but you can see there's a notion of where do those images come from. Well, arguably they come from an urban village uh, in the 50s and 60s. The redesign of houses are going back to traditional architectural design, making use of, uh, of openings uh, in houses, ventilation, um, recognizing multiple dwelling buildings, multiple households within one land plot. So recreating a past, if you will. Uh, we have the picket fences, uh, whether that's a, re a direct re replication of new urbanism. Uh, we, uh, I think it will be. It's a notion of 
creating a protected but open area within households, so removing the zinc. And residents would say one of the key things to do is remove the zinc uh, because that then opens up not only physical activities but, but mental, uh, psychological access to your neighbour. And finally, this is an interesting, we talked about the urban hydrological, hydrological cycle. One of the key developments happening now, it's being dug as we speak, is a new water, water pipe that runs. This is, the, again, the master plan, the artist's impression. As you see, miraculously, um, no man's land is now replete with a school, community centre, new housing, but the water pipeline links top end and bottom end. And you'll think, what are those um, red crosses? They're standpipes. Why on earth in 2013 are we putting in water with standpipes? Well, standpipes mean that people come together and get water. They're cheaper provision, but you get fresh drinking water, but you have to engage around the standpipe. And that, in some ways, is, is one of the aspects of, of new urbanism, or at least in terms of this time of development, it's interesting to look at. And residents said, no, we'd actually rather have standpipes. So, in some ways, if you look at back to the future, you see uh, Rose Town developments implementing some of the technologies of the 1950s to actually create a more sustainable and secure neighbourhood in 2013. Thank you. Questions to David. We could talk over reception. I don't mind. Tara. Oh, hang on. Shall I repeat it? I'll repeat it. Can we get this over? No, it's stuck in there. Can you talk into that? It's going to be too complicated. Okay, sorry about that. My quiet voice. Um, it was for both speakers, really, this idea, because I know in English uh, we have this problem now with um, archives in the sense, so say Salman Rushdie is, is donating his hard drive to the British Library because there's this fear that we're going to lose uh, records. So I guess in both of your cases, both of your areas, how, is that something that you worry about, that um, history, say if people are going to be cremated more and more, does that mean that we're not... So we, we have to leave something for the future, but we might not have anything to leave. That is a problem. Um, you said he's donated his hard drive. How confident is he that people will be able to access hard drive? Presumably he'll delete some of the dodgy. No, I don't think so. But actually, it's <laughs> I mean, that, that slide tonight where I showed different floppy, floppy disks. Um, you, mm. you put it on. And then the technology updates, and people can't afford to keep updating the record system. So mm. People haven't been updating the record system. It is, it is a very serious issue for mm. the future. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'd say well, the good, good and interesting side. The good is that in the Gleaner, this archive, digital archive, all its research. Oh, okay. So I've, I've not yet got all these images of Rosetown. I've got all the text and stuff, but the images are there lurking in the digitized. So that's great. And the Gleaner are amazing. So even the last 10 years, my research in Jamaica has transformed. I can just look at the, you know, and anyone working, I think, in Jamaica, the Gleaner archive is amazing. Amazing. It's like there. Gone are dusty days in the archives and bits of torn paper, etc. On the other side, the results, my early work was looking at census material, and the only existing format for the 1961 census was in punch cards. And I spent nine months going around 
almost went to California with boxes of French guards because there was not an existing leader. Uh, and there was only one set of these French guards left and no leader. And it ended up, nine months later, at Rolls-Royce, and someone, an engineer in Rolls-Royce in Derby, had a punch guard leader. <laughs> and that's the only way that these data would have been released. Because mm. good old Rolls-Royce. Um, and if they want to sponsor a book, no. Um, <laughs> um, so that's in the good, you know, it's interesting. But it's, I've really learned from the ease today of sitting in my office and looking at, you know, 1928, Mr. Rose's letter to the uh, to try and find a lump of metal that could read bits of cardboard that was the only way I could access a key year, 1961, one year before independence. Mm. And the census was just mm. in cardboard boxes. So I think, yeah, it's a good question. It is. I mean, I think it's probably one of the, the biggest issues, cross-disciplinary issues that there is, is the sustainability of, of the record. made about urban burial grounds but also about urban housing and the way in which for me as a 19th century French historian the sort of uh, teleological argument is always the wonderful moment pre-housemanization where you had a townhouse where all of the classes passed each other on the stairwell thereby one has social integration achieved burial grounds equally uh, this wonderful sort of positive motion towards creating a new urban space reclaimed from garrison communities to my experience in sort of post-war European context has a very abrupt tipping point from which you move from desolation and uh, garrison community into quite stark gentrification. And I'm wondering to what extent do you feel that there is a, a way to manage that tipping point so that one doesn't lead from one problem to a different set of problems. And as a design historian, somebody who works very much within urban architectural thinking, are there ways in which we as makers of objects and spaces can help with these sociological questions? Are there structures that we could help think through for you that move us from zinc to picket fence, but not a picket fence that then becomes a gated community? Terrifying question to ask you. But it, I just wondered if we had an equally that within burial spaces, do we end up having the sort of uh, Evelyn War <laughs> beloved vision on the other sides? Controlling the level of marking so that you don't get this polarization. 
but I mean, I quite agree with you on that slide of, of the future of Rosetown. Those gates reminded me not of picket fences, but of gated communities in, in the artist's impressions. And I, and I was immediately worrying that they were going to be dividing people off. Well, I guess, I guess on that one, you know, it depends how you perspective, isn't it? Because if you're leaning over and neighbours fence chatting, um, that, you know, they're open and accessible and marking their own space. They just looked yeah. just too big. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, mean think, I think in terms of the, the, the answer question, it's state intervention and market economy. So if you want affordable housing, you keep it affordable. The free market doesn't do that. So you have a, a strong, whether it's a municipal level, community level, or state level, you know, you have a state-controlled state market, but you, if you have affordable housing, you make sure that that remains affordable, and the market doesn't do that. Especially if you create Seaside is a classic example where it had very good remit for a variety of, 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 of income levels, studios, the two bedroom, etc. And of course, who doesn't want to buy an apartment on the California coast near, near to Disneyland? You know, well, a lot of people do, who can afford it? <laughs> <laughs> well, or, or, or in a British context, Trellick Tower. Yeah. No, that Trellick Tower was reclaimed as a sort of in inverted commas, council cesspit to being one of the most glamorous postcode locations in London now. And a, a friend of mine inhabited that space all through that transition. And it was a heartbreaking decision that he had to take, not being able to maintain the sense of going back to, it is the mixed community that must be achieved not just the improved and then displaced. Don't enact a further husmanization by then reclaiming a neighborhood for the middle class. And I think even that wonderful initiative to have affordable housing, if one hasn't got stakeholders from a range of social classes, are we actually just looking at a 25-year rotation of where that displaced community is positioned within an urban setting? Sorry, replying too soon.
will look back on a golden age and try to recreate that in a way. It's also quite common, really, in, in the way that burial rituals and exodus